Welcome to the Outcomes Rocket Podcast, where we inspire collaborative thinking, improved outcomes, and business success with today's most successful and inspiring healthcare leaders and influencers. And now your host, Saul Marquez. Outcomes Rocket listeners, welcome once again to the Outcomes Rocket, the show where we interview today's most inspiring and successful healthcare leaders. If you like what you listened to today or you like what you've listened to in the past in general on the show, we ask that you go to iTunes and rate and review us. Give us some feedback. We're always looking for ways to improve. Feedback is key. And so without any further ado, I want to introduce to you our outstanding guest. His name is Dr. Amesh Adalja. Dr. Adalja is an infectious disease physician working on pandemic policy, emerging infections, preventing bioterrorism, amongst other things. He's board certified in internal medicine, emergency medicine, infectious diseases, and critical care medicine. He was named one of Stat News's top 13 physicians to follow on Twitter. He's got a blog that he does a lot of his thought leadership on. It's called trackingzebra.com. Without further ado, Amish, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. And so why did you decide to get into medicine to begin with? Well, I got into medicine sort of because I love the detective work and I like applying science to problems and seeing the results right in front of you. And both my parents are physicians, but that kind of gave me exposure, but they were never very encouraging towards medicine because it had changed a lot since they had been through it. But I really got drawn to this kind of scientific thinking and all this Sherlock Holmes detective work. And that's specifically why I ended up in infectious disease. And I think that's really where I find medicine is unrivaled with all of the critical thinking that needs to go on. No, that's really neat. It's that solving the mystery and putting the pieces of the puzzle together that got you in. And so what would you say today is a hot topic that should be on every medical leader's agenda? And what are you guys doing to focus on that? Sorry, I missed that first part. What's on everybody's agenda? I... No, no problem. A hot topic that should be on everybody's okay. agenda, any leader's agenda and health. Sure, sure. There's lots of them. So in my field in infectious disease, I think that people really have to start thinking about the rise. That's become probably the most pressing problem that we face as a nation, where we're in this increasingly common scenario where we have infections that are being treated in our hospitals, in our doctor's offices, in our nursing homes that are not susceptible to any of our new antibiotics. Really, that threat can basically halt all of modern medicine because you have to use antibiotics just to put in a pacemaker, to put in an artist, administer chemotherapy, or have an organ transplant. But what we're really running into is this scenario where these bacteria have evolved all this resistance. We've used antibiotics so poorly, and now we're basically seeing that all kind of come home to roost. And it's something that's really underappreciated, but is starting finally to hit the agenda of healthcare executives as insurance companies and, and regulatory agencies are really looking at the rate of antibiotic resistance and what types of antibiotic stewardship programs are in place. How judicious are your physicians using an antibiotic? So I think that's going to really be something that every healthcare executive and every healthcare provider really is going to have to think about in a way that they haven't had to before. Yeah, Amish, and is there a framework right now or an answer that maybe you have on, on how to address this? It's hard. There's not a, one single magic bullet to this because there's a lot of behavioral components to it. For right. example, you've got patients who demand antibiotics. You've got doctors who are trying to hedge their bet and just give antibiotics or just satisfy the patient because they don't want to get a, a complaint and have a, a manager come down and say, why did this patient complain? Could you just give them an antibiotic? 
there's all of that that's driving it. Most of the times, this isn't a knowledge problem. Doctors know when they don't need to prescribe antibiotics, but yet they do it anyway because the incentives are the other way. So really what you have to do is start to track physicians' prescribing patterns and really offer them feedback and figure out exactly why this physician is prescribing to this patient and try and come up with kind of not a one-size-fits-all type of thing, but more of a nuanced way to think about doing this and, and create economic incentives on the, that, that go the other way that, so that you're not being rewarded for injudicious prescribing. Right, right. No, that's really interesting. And you started in medicine and, and fast forward to today, you, you've got a bunch of things that are resistant to antibiotics. And what would you give uh, to the listeners an example of, of how you've done things differently and, and created results or improved outcomes? I think it's a little bit that, that question doesn't fully apply to the stuff I do. What I try to do is think about these infectious disease problems and try and find out where the system system-wide policy issue is or where this gotcha. kind of impacts with with other with other facets of industry. So I think that, you know, for example, we I've done work where we've advised government panels on how to better streamline guidelines, how to incorporate certain types of new drugs or new or new diagnostic tests into how we think about the management of infectious disease on a national level. So that's sort of what I do. It's not necessarily outcomes on a, on a patient level or on a hospital level. It's more on a wider policy framework where you start to try and analyze things through a better lens that then lead to downstream results as other people pick that up and apply it to their specific problems or facilities. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you're, you're more focused on creating that, that systems change that will lead to better outcomes and putting the policies and procedures into place that will actually help take advantage of the knowledge that we have today on that. Yes, exactly. Gotcha. And can you give us an example of something that you guys have done recently to affect positive change that way? So one of the things that we worked on recently was so right now you're seeing in the headlines, we're seeing this, all of these hurricanes, these healthcare facilities that have all been disrupted by the hurricanes. Yes. Some of the work that my colleagues and I have done, and this isn't strictly in the infectious disease world, but it sort of kind of crosses into it because it is part of pandemic preparedness, being able to deal with catastrophic health events and disasters. And we did a lot of work looking at how hospitals coped with Hurricane Sandy or Superstorm Sandy a couple of years ago in the New York metropolitan area because there were major hospitals at that point, it needed to be evacuated, and those patients then had to disperse to other hospitals. So we did a, a study looking at how that went down and what were the roadblocks, what, were, what worked well, what, what didn't work well, how could this be better, anticipating this would happen again. So we, my group at, at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security has done a lot of work trying to understand how to make hospitals more resilient to these types of events, whether they're from pandemic influenza, a bioterrorist attack, or a natural weather event. And, in that, and some of our work has become part of national guidance now, and often we are called as experts to try and explain what's going on and try and figure out what a better way to do this. And we published several different papers looking at hospital preparedness. And I think now some of my senior colleagues really are the fathers of this movement in, in healthcare to really think about hospital preparedness as a core function of a hospital, whereas before it was kind of an afterthought. But I think after Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Superstorm Sandy, and what we're seeing now with these two hurricanes, this has become something that we've really tried to pioneer and has kind of changed the way healthcare facilities think about these events. 
Oh, that's truly fascinating, Amesh. And to the listeners, the reason why we're here today, just having a discussion with Amesh and, and, and really just the, the show in, in, in general is best practices sharing. And so if you're in an area of the country where you are at risk for these types of situations with the weather or, or whatever it may be, what is your plan to make sure that you are prepared for when it comes? And I put it out there to you that to take advantage and check out the thoughts that Amesh is, is sharing on, on his blog and take a look at, at some of the papers that they have out there as a, as a basis to begin your planning. And so what suggestions would you give to provider listeners here on, on emergency preparedness? Well, I think you have to make it part of your routine business practices just the same way that you have other aspects of your business. You have to have a, you have to take emergency planning seriously, even if you are just a primary care provider or if you're a big hospital system. And it kind of falls all the way through. And it really mm-hmm. has to be a kind of a, the whole healthcare ecosystem has to be prepared because if you're a, a physician and you have at-risk patients, where are they going to get their medication refills? What power are people going to find their medical records? All that stuff has to, you have to think about that, even at the individual office level, wow. let alone at a healthcare system level, even nursing homes. They're hearing about in Florida now nursing homes and that did not have air conditioning because wow. there wasn't backup power and people died. So this wow. is something every, every healthcare facility has to plan for. Wow. Yeah, that's such a really great point. It just spans the continuum. It's not just the large hospitals. It's down to the physician, the practicing physician. What are you doing? What's your plan? And even for industry listeners, hey, you know, what is it that you can do to help support the physicians and and the health systems in this preparedness? What plans do you have in place to add value to the health ecosystem in times of need? Great topic. I'm really glad that you brought up some of these uh, points to the discussion, Amish. Thanks. Let's dive into this side then. What would you say uh, a setback that you've experienced in the great experience that you've had that's really taught you a lot about dealing with these situations? I think it's very hard to get traction. When, anytime you're talking about something that happens very rarely, whether it's pandemic yes. flu, a disaster, a bioterrorist attack, many people don't take that seriously because it's kind of part of this maybe too hard to solve of a problem or something that will never really happen. And people can't find a way to kind of conceptualize thinking about, for example, a 1918 influenza pandemic happening today. So mm-hmm. they, they don't necessarily think about it. So it's very hard to try and make that case to people. And I think what it teaches you is that their people have a very strong cognitive biases at place, and they don't necessarily think of these black swan type events. And when you're in the field that I'm in, you spend a lot of time thinking about these black swan events and preparing for them. And then kind of you feel a little bit vindicated when you have the outbreak of Zika virus or, or the West African Ebola outbreak or 2009 H1N1 or SARS or or MERS, all these outbreaks happen, but yet people still go back to their daily life and forget about what a disruption those things are and the fact that they continue to come year after year and people don't necessarily put them on the on the right footing that they should because of whatever their cognitive biases are. And I think it's important that you have to try and make this kind of case to show people that there is value in thinking about these threats and because of the downside when you miss them or the, the repercussions, you know, SARS went around the globe and, and cost billions of dollars in, in economic losses because people were not prepared for SARS or weren't thinking about these types of infections. So I think that's what I think is one of the setbacks is really all the time when you tell people you work on this type of stuff, it can sometimes get lost kind of in the, it kind of gets lost in it because it's not part of their everyday daily thinking. 
And that makes it much harder to sell those types of that kind of preparation or that kind of, you know, even writing grants for that type of thing or trying to get people to take these things seriously is very hard at any level, at a local hospital level, at the government level, even to your individual neighbor level. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And just thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, uh, oftentimes we're we spend so much time focused on today or, or the quarter, and we neglect to think about the severity of these events. Would you say there's a type of guideline? So maybe you're not investing 100% into these things. Maybe you could incrementally invest and make sure that it stays at the forefront. Is there any resource that you would recommend to the listeners to check out in order to to be able to stay prepared? Well, I think it depends on what you're talking about and where you live. Obviously, if you live in Florida, you have to think about things differently than if you are a hospital that's in New York City that gets a lot of patients that come from the airport. Detecting an emergency. The area of your public health preparedness, where they think about all hazards, infectious disease, weather emergencies, conventional terrorist attacks, or you can start to think about what, what you need to do. And I think it's not necessarily, you have to, have, you, it's, I think it's important to have somebody in your organization dedicated to thinking about that, that, that they need to, and going to the meetings and keeping up with what's going on. And I think that's the best, and that's at least the minimum that you can do. And obviously, if you're a big tertiary care hospital in a metro, major metropolitan area, your needs and thoughts of this are going to be much more different than a small nursing home in a suburb. Right. So I think you have to, Think about it at whatever level is there, but I think there there are resources at the CDC website as well as at your local and state health departments that, that work on public health preparedness to think about all of these threats in that manner. Some good guideposts there, uh, Amesh. What would you say what are your proudest leadership moments to date are in medicine? I would say so during the Ebola outbreak in West Africa when that panic kind of spilled into the United States after we had the imported case in Dallas and two That's nurses right. infected, I remember that. two nurses gotten infected. The Infectious Disease Society of America, which is the major organization of infectious disease physicians, made me one of their main spokespersons. So I spent a lot of time on television and writing and on radio and talking to reporters and and giving lectures to the general public, really trying to put it all into context and show them that although Ebola was a deadly and scary disease, it wasn't going to take over the United States and cause some kind of apocalyptic infection. So I spent a lot of time trying to turn down the temperature, basically in the United States because we were really facing a lot of calamity where there were people that were were proposing very draconian types of, of regimens to start quarantining people, travel bans. There were rushes on Tyvek suits going on. A lot of hysteria was basically starting to develop, and I spent a lot of time trying to dampen that down, and I did get a lot of recognition from my peers and from the general public about how I was at least a, a sound, a cooler head during that time. and. And I think that is probably one of the more prouder things that I did is that ability to have that kind of an impact on the general public and on the on the healthcare community during what was probably one of the biggest crises that we faced from a, a publicity, public relations uh, kind of uh, crisis communication standpoint. It takes a voice of reason, and it sounds like you you were definitely that voice of reason during that chaos. And and we need folks like you, uh, Amesh, to really kind of get through those tough times. So you know, thank you for your service there, and and we really appreciate the thought leadership that you are are kind of driving here. And so, really want to say thanks for that. Can you tell us a little bit more about an exciting project or focus that you're working on today? Yeah. So one one project I'm working on right now is kind of interesting, and it's it's one of those things where it's kind of a black swan event. It's looking at we have all of these big pandemic threats that come around. We right. think about Ebola or influenza, plague. I'm trying to understand what it is about certain pathogens that 
causes them to have that capacity. Coming up with a list, a really a framework. When you start thinking about the whole world of bacteria, virus, fungi, protozoa, parasites, prions, everything there is out there, what is it about them? About certain ones of them, what do they need to be able to do to be able to cause something like we saw during 1918, where you had basically a global catastrophic risk from this from that virus? So I'm trying to really understand what it is about these these agents that does it. So I'm talking to lots of people trying to really develop a whole new way of analyzing this. And it's kind of an exciting project. And I, I appreciate some of that my thinking on it in, in a piece I wrote for The Atlantic a couple, about a year and a half ago. And I think that I'm just really trying to chart my own way of thinking about these types of threats because we've kind of been copying the same thing over and over again. Mm-hmm. And I think now, I think it's time to kind of take a fresh lens of analysis to really delve into the framework of why we worry about certain things and we don't worry about others. That's really fascinating, and I'm excited to see what comes out of that. Is it is it going to come out in the form of a book? What's the form that it's going to come out in? Probably a report, maybe some journal articles, and maybe some general audience type of presentations and, and maybe opinion pieces. And uh, I think, it, it, you know, eventually I'd like to write a book on the, on the subject too as well. That's kind of something I'm trying to formulate for a while, and I that's kind of what the Atlantic monthly piece was that I did a while back that was a preview of the whole idea. That's fascinating. Hey, and I'm, I'm looking forward to, to keeping up with your thoughts and for the listeners as well. Be sure to stay abreast of what Amesh is putting out there because it is, it is certainly uh, thought leadership material in, in this area of infectious diseases. And so at this point, Amesh, time does fly. I wish sometimes we had more time than 30 minutes on these shows, but you take them and you, and you enjoy them, right? So yeah. we're going to do a, a little thing. We're going to pretend we're building a medical leadership course on what it takes to be successful in medicine today. It's the 101 course or the ABCs of Amish Adalja. And so here we're going to discuss four questions and it's kind of like a lightning round. So you'll give me your prompt answers to these four questions and then we'll finish up this syllabus with a book that you recommend to the listeners. You ready? Sure. Awesome. What's the best way to improve healthcare outcomes? I think it's education. It has to be that the providers have to really be completely up to date and know what what works and what doesn't work and don't deviate from scientific-based practice. What's the biggest mistake or pitfall to avoid? Getting lazy and getting complacent about what you know and don't know. I think you really, in medicine, have to take this as something that's going to be changing on a daily basis and you have to commit to to really being abreast of everything at, at a moment's notice. I love that. How do you stay relevant as an organization despite constant change? Kind of going back back to the, the last answer I gave, you really have to be looking at the trends that are going on and trying to project into the future, seeing what little blips are out there that are going to change the way medicine is practiced or healthcare is delivered. So I think that means you have to have very high situational awareness of anything that could really impact it, including, for example, technology, as well as what's going on in the basic sciences. What's the one area of focus that should drive all else in your organization? I think it's, it's being relevant and being able to actually have an impact on whatever it is that you're trying to deliver, what value you're trying to deliver to whoever your audience is. And finally, Amish, what book would you recommend to the listeners? So that's a hard one because I, don't, I think in my field, there's a lot of great books that have been written on them. I would think that a, for the a general audience that's interested in healthcare, I think something like The Coming Plague by Laurie Garrett, it's a little bit old in 1994, but it really is a comprehensive look at the threat of infectious disease over time and how that really impacts, has impacted the world. Love it. So there you have it, Outcomes Rocket listeners, the 101 of Amish Adalja. 
And so what you want to do is go to outcomesrocket.com slash Amesh. That's A-M-E-S-H. You'll get all the show notes, links to his website, links to all the projects that he's working on, including a link to the book that he just mentioned, where you'll be able to download and understand more deeply what we just discussed today. And so Amesh, I know that we're getting close to the end here. So what I want to do is just before we conclude, ask you to share one closing thought and then the best place where the Outcomes Rocket listeners could get a hold of you. I think infectious diseases are endlessly fascinating and maybe you yourself aren't interested in infectious disease, but I do think that people should be able to uh, extrapolate what I say about infectious disease, all the detective work, how the tentacles of infectious disease reach into every industry and all over the world. And I think that's what makes endlessly challenging and endlessly fascinating for me, that there's no bottom to it, that I keep finding new things on a daily basis. And I think that kind of is what drives my passion for the field. And I think if you're interested in what I have to say, you can find me on, on www.trackingzebra.com, which is my blog. You can also follow me on Twitter. That's in this at Amish, A-M-E-S-H-A-A, where I talk a lot about infectious disease issues for the general public. Amish, thank you so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure just having you on here and just talk about these really relevant topics to improving healthcare outcomes. And so really wish you the best and uh, want to thank you once again for joining us on the show. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Outcomes Rocket podcast. Be sure to visit us on the web at www.outcomesrocket.com for the show notes, resources, inspiration, and so much more. 